Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, May 28th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18, through chapter 9, verse 16. Jeremiah laments the idolatry and sin that has grown throughout Judah and Jerusalem, along with the destruction that he knows will come upon them according to the Lord's word. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Dr. Kuntz serves as Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. As we get started, let's talk a little context. We're in Jeremiah 8 and 9 this morning. What do we need to know about the prophet, where we are in the book, going into the text for today? We need to learn that, among other things, that are difficult for Jeremiah personally. One is his youthfulness, which is a cause earlier on in the book of his objecting to the Lord's call. You know, how can this be? But the understanding that Jeremiah's message does not issue from himself, it's not his message, it's the Lord's. And the call to proclaim that message issues from the Lord, not from Jeremiah. So he has both a divine call and a divine message. And that's important to keep in mind because. Sometimes when people think about Jeremiah the prophet, or maybe if you know the word Jeremiad, which is just sort of a, a lament or a denunciation of something, everything is awful, you know, uh, that can be associated just with mere personality or mere grumbling. But Jeremiah is not speaking his own message. So the denunciation of sin that we're going to get in today's text is not just Jeremiah's grousing or grumbling about people he doesn't like. It is a divine condemnation of evil. What's interesting about this section particularly, and this is certainly true in other parts of Jeremiah, is that you actually do see Jeremiah's own character come out, his own personal struggles with the message that he has to proclaim. I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, you've got this, and we'll see this in the text, his hatred of their sin and idolatry, and yet at the same time, he mourns for the people. I mean, which I think is, is that's one of the striking features of Jeremiah is to see how even as he preaches this message that does come from God, he almost fights against it, it seems like sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He is in, he's, he's more frequently reluctant than Isaiah or Ezekiel, the other two major prophets. There's reluctance in all three to some degree, but I think understandably in the case of Jeremiah, there's, there's more reluctance than the others, partly because of his youth, but also because of the nature of his message, because so much of Jeremiah's message consists in denunciation and condemnation of sin. And that task is not one I think that anyone specifically wants. And so the difficulty or the struggle or the sadness of seeing what he sees and having to say what he says is, I think, greater in him than in any other prophet. Yeah, and, and this is going to be one of those texts where we, we see that. Do you think, and, and as we read the text, this is one of the questions that's been on my mind. For example, the first verse, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. And then, I mean, that that's going to come up in a couple of ways. Is that, I mean, it sounds like Jeremiah, but is that also a picture of the Lord's own pain in, in having to speak this message to his people? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and English Bibles can make this uh, kind of make a decision for you that is not necessarily there in the original Hebrew by putting in quotation marks, such that, for instance, in the Bible, I mean, just the text that I'm looking at right now, there's a quote, there are quotation marks around chapter 8, verse 17, but then they close at the end of verse 17. And so the, the translator believed that verse 18 was being spoken by Jeremiah, not the Lord. But the issue here, I think, is maybe they're reluctant to say that the Lord like feels lament or something. But we see the Lord regretting that he had appointed Saul as king. And then in the New Testament, we see the Lord lamenting over Jerusalem. He longed to gather them as a hen gathers her chicks, yet they would not. So I think that it's very possible and, and probably really the most likely thing that the Lord is the one speaking at the beginning of what we're going to be looking at. Mm. All right, let's let's keep that in mind as as we read. Your, I mean, in the in the ESV, which is what I'm I'm mm-hmm. reading out of, it even adds the heading over this particular section that Jeremiah grieves for his people. So it's it's make, again making that decision. I think that certainly Jeremiah is involved in this, but I, yeah. I think I think yeah. we're also getting a picture of of what's going on in the Lord's own heart as well, particularly as you bring out with Christ's lament over Jerusalem in the New Testament, I think there's some connections to be made. And maybe, maybe too, we can talk about this too, how this, uh, is this a topic that comes up in seminary education? When you, when you, I would imagine it does occasionally where, where you, you know, you're, you're preparing these men to serve as pastors and telling them this is what you have to say, but sometimes it's going to hurt you also in the, yeah. in the saying, is that something that, that comes up? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I actually just talked about it yesterday in talking about Second Corinthians, because the, the emotion that Paul expresses in Second Corinthians over very difficult congregation um, is very similar to Jeremiah. It's also similar to Paul talking about his desire to be condemned, if it would mean at the beginning of Romans 9, that his own people, the Jews, would be saved. So that that sort of that deep emotion and deep sadness that people have not turned to the Lord is is the place. And so it, if it's in the scriptures, it should be expected also in a person's ministry because you're gonna you're gonna work and you're gonna you're gonna strive for someone and proclaim the gospel to him and, and yet he still may reject it. Let's take a look at the text then. We're gonna I'm gonna read the whole thing through, and then we'll work our way okay. through and, and kind of get a feel for where maybe is it Jeremiah? Where's the Lord? Where is it? Where is it? Perhaps both. So Jeremiah eight, beginning at verse eighteen. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth have grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity. 
heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains, and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness, because they are laid waste so that no one passes through, and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness, so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. That's our text for today, Jeremiah 8, 18, all the way through 9, 16. Dr. Coons, let, let's start in the beginning section where there is this grief, this lament, both from Jeremiah and the Lord. One of the, the key terms that the Lord, that Jeremiah speaks concerning Judah, he calls them the daughter of my people on several occasions. What's the significance of that term for the people of Judah and Jerusalem? Yeah, it's an image that appears all over the prophets, really, but especially Isaiah and Jeremiah. And the image is a way of thinking about Israel uh, as a group embodied in a single person. And significantly here, Israel is a woman, uh, a young woman uh, who should be betrothed uh, and then married and then, you know, bear children, have a happy home. Think of the picture of a, a happy wife in, in Proverbs chapter 31. So this way of looking at Israel is, is interesting because it doesn't refer to the uh, forefathers, right? It doesn't, it's not just calling them Israel as if they are all collectively one man. It's a way that anticipates the way that the New Testament speaks very clearly about the church as the bride of Christ. The sad thing in Jeremiah, as well as other prophets, is that this woman does not, is not how she should be. Instead of being chaste, she is whoring around, a word that appears not only in the beginning of Jeremiah, but also in places like Hosea. Um, instead of being faithful, she's faithless. And so the way of picturing that uh, is, I think, especially poignant and sad, because Jeremiah is saying, my people is like a young woman, you know, weeping, she's sad, she's miserable, and she's wondering where her where the Lord is, who is her betrothed. She should be espoused to him. They should be together, but they are not. And she's asking, is he even here? Where did he go? Well, and, and that really becomes a key question for Jeremiah in this text and in others, particularly in view of the exile, the, the leaving of Jerusalem. I mean, well, back in chapter 7, where the people are comforting themselves falsely, with this matter, you know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, how, how could God 
forsake us when the temple's right there. For right. for Jeremiah and the, the other faithful residents of Jerusalem and Judah, when the exile does come, this is one of the key questions is, you know, what what happened? Where was the Lord? What was he doing? Where's where's his promise? And I mean, that that's a really important question that they have that I think sometimes we, we don't know the significance of it, but it's a really big deal. And it's an important question that Jeremiah will keep asking and answering as the book continues. Right. And the question usually gets put in people's lives today on a completely individual level. Where, where was God when this happened? Or, or has God forsaken me? Or, and I think that that's, that's all entirely correct. I think usually in the scriptures, the thought process starts as, as do so many other things in the scriptures, starts with a collective or a group reality, and then you kind of can apply that to yourself individually. So whereas a lot of times, because our people live very kind of cut off lives from each other, even from their own families in some cases, we experience life on a very individual level. And it can be sometimes hard to understand the scripture for that reason, because they're thinking about the the collective level first, and the collective level is here, all the people together saying something, and that's something that they say is, where is the Lord? How could he ever leave us? I mean, it, it's both, like a lot of things in Jeremiah, it's both sad, but also you can understand exactly how they got here, hmm. because there's a certain pride in that lament. Hmm. Who are you to leave us? Why would you ever leave us? And that there, so there is something extremely sad. You feel bad for them. Simultaneously, you can see precisely how they got to where they were because of the pride that remains even in their desolation. Hmm. Well, and I, I think that that matter of pride is is important in this particular text. I think there are times when that lament can be made not in pride. For example, the book of right. Lam- mm-hmm. the, the book of Lamentations, I think, yeah. is is lamenting out of a, a true repentance. I mean, just, and we're, we'll read yeah. Lamentations after we get through Jeremiah, but I mean, having read it before, just the, the utter despair is, is, is close to it. And, but it's coming out of repentance there. Here, yeah. here it's, I mean, I think it's, you know, thinking about who's talking here. If, if you, if you take it as Jeremiah, you know, my joy is gone, I'm grieving. The, the cry, cry of the daughter of my people, this is Jeremiah identifying with the people to whom he's preaching. These two questions are asked. Isn't the Lord not in Zion? Is the king not in her? And again, the, the ESV makes a translation choice for you in opening new quotes with the next question. But I think it makes sense that it's almost like the Lord interrupts the questions and say, well, you want to know why I'm not there? It's because you you tried to take my turf. <laughs> you, you, you pushed me out with these carved images yeah. and these foreign idols. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's also interesting to note the nature of idolatry here, right? Because idolatry does not consist in simply saying, I want one or the other. In the case of God's people, whether the Old Testament church or the New Testament church, idolatry seems much more often to be an addition rather than a subtraction problem. Hmm. So you want to keep the Lord, you want to keep Jesus, but you also want to add on, right? You're not going inside what is effectively the only Orthodox group of believers on the earth at this time, inside the Southern Kingdom. You're not just going to blatantly reject the Lord. You're going to put other gods also inside the Lord's house. You're going to bring into your life also the Baals and the Asherim in addition to the Lord. So I think the, it, you see a lot behind the lamentation because you can see both their pride, but also their desire to have, have their cake and eat it too. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, I, and I'm reminded of the way Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount with, you know, you can't serve two masters. We, we think right. we can. We think we can just <laughs> yeah. stick, we have Jesus up there and then add some things next to him. But Jesus says it doesn't work that way. It's You're just right. going to serve something or someone, and whatever that one thing is, it will dethrone everything else. And, and I mean, that's what the people yep. of Israel struggle with. That's what we still struggle with in our idolatry as well. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I think the nature of idolatry here is that it always wants as much as it can possibly have, which is why I think most often for human beings, the most natural form of idolatry is going to be what we would call polytheism, but it might not be self-conscious. It could be, you know, you, you think of yourself as a Christian, but then also you want this and you want that and you, you serve this and you serve that. So I think that it's very natural, sadly, but, but natural that they would want to add on. And that, and that is precisely what they've done. I mean, they have, there are, there are temples that are erected for foreign gods, both in the Northern kingdom and the Southern, but there is also, you know, you see this, especially in Ezekiel where you get these sneak peeks of the temple <laughs> mm. before the, the final destruction of Jerusalem. And, you know, the lid is lifted and people are worshiping false gods in the Lord's temple. So that that addition is really quite. I mean, it's it's architectural. It's it's literal. It's it's not only something that happens on a psychological or personal level. Yeah, and I mean, from the context of Jeremiah, we know that he began his ministry during the reign of King Josiah, one of the the greater reformers. And yet, mm-hmm. everything that Josiah did was pretty quickly erased. Some of it, most of it, did not right. take root in the, the hearts of the people. And and it was a pretty quick downfall from there. This this text does strike me as coming maybe. A, it seems to fit a little bit later than some of the other texts we've run to from Jeremiah so far. Some of the other texts have seemed to be more like during Josiah's reign or not long after it. But this one seems to be, and again, it's it's hard to know for sure with some of Jeremiah, but this one does seem to have a, a later flavor to it coming either closer to the exile or, or right around the time of the exile. Right. And, and like you said, it's hard because it sometimes seems as if Jeremiah is much more loosely arranged certainly than Isaiah, but, but also than Ezekiel. And uh, so you have to kind of figure out from the tone or from the topic, uh, we're already suffering, right? That some sort of desolation has happened, but it, you know, even that's a little hard to nail down because when you go back to the end of second Kings or the, you know, the end of not quite, not all the way to the end, but close to the end of second Chronicles, you realize that the, the process of downfall or collapse of the Southern kingdom is gradual. And, and the historical sections of Jeremiah tell you that too, that, that people have opportunity to be warned, to repent, that very bad things happen before Jerusalem is destroyed. And yet as that's ongoing, right, uh, they still do not repent. So that's, that's, I think, key to remember is that there is a process. Not everything happens. Jeremiah is not predicting like one fateful day. There's a long process um, that people in the area could have observed. And sometimes in this process, we get this lament, where is the Lord? Did he flee? But things are not yet completely destroyed, and so pride remains. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, you can just see how the lament grows in this text. Mm-hmm. You know, verse, verse 20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, we are not saved. Think of a, you know, a, a year in which there is no harvest and there's no chance for a harvest, the despair that comes— 
I mean, Jeremiah, the, the wound of the daughter of my people in verse 21, there's that, that language again. Jeremiah says, my heart is wounded. And I think, I mean, I think too, the Lord's heart is, is wounded. He doesn't, sometimes we, we speak this way theologically, this is the Lord's alien work to speak this message of judgment and to actually bring it upon his people. Certainly Jeremiah is wounded having to, to bring that message and to experience it himself. We, we know Jeremiah was inflicted with a lot of wounds, some of them from the, mm-hmm. from the Lord's people, some of them from the Babylonians later. But again, and, and then, you know, just like verse 21, and this is perhaps memorable because, you know, we've got the hymn title, is there no balm in Gilead? Is, where, where is the help? It's a, there is a, a feeling of, of desperation, of, of almost despair from Jeremiah here as he continues this, this lament. Right. Yeah. And I think that the two things, you mentioned the harvest earlier, also the notion that no balm would come from Gilead is a sort of, it, the question is asking, has the world collapsed? Because those are both two very natural processes that obviously depend upon God's gift. Uh, he gives the early and the latter rain. Uh, he makes there to be these beautiful trees that also produce uh, healing substances uh, in you know, the northeast of historic Israel. But those things also appear to be gone. And I think that the idea that the natural world itself is reflecting divine judgment is one of the most terrifying but also frequent things that you see in the Old Testament. You get it too with the mentions of earthquakes in the minor prophets, that somehow the fact that the world is falling down is not itself an accident, but is actually a cause for repentance to come about because it shows you God's anger, right? They, they don't see the events of the natural world as completely disconnected. So there is a question. I mean, it's poetry. The question, you know, is this going to fail too? But the reason that that question comes about is because like you get earlier on in chapter eight, really at the very beginning, is the notion that like the sun and the moon will fail, right? Um, The sun and the moon and the hosts of heaven, which they've worshiped, if even those things should fall down, then, you know, you know that God's wrath has come upon the earth. Well, I mean, this is the language that Jesus picks up when he starts talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in the New Testament and, and his coming too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the idea that ultimately, because God is the creator and the governor of all these things, that they are subject to his goodwill, to his divine pleasure, and to his upholding. And if he refuses to uphold them, then their failure is a sign of great hardship and difficulty in Israel. In the same sense, I mean, you get this very, very clearly in the book of Ruth, which begins with a famine, and then the reason that they begin to go back to the land, and then they can find the kinsman redeemer, and then eventually from that union, in a couple generations, David the king will be born. The reason all that happens is because God remembers his people and begins to bless the land again, the land of Israel that he gave them. So you're always dealing with this idea that the natural world is both God's creation and also reflects his blessing or his bane. And you get that here as well uh, in the idea that the area turns into a wilderness. <laughs> I mean, because what happens when God judges is that what was a city, and when you think of a city, you know, I guess we think of something that is in some ways pretty bad for this around, that all that trash has to go somewhere, you know. Cities are not that big or that sort of uh, difficult upon the land in this time. Um, and they're going to have fields all around them in order to sustain the inhabitants. So 
the idea is that instead of people, you have animals, but a specific kind of animals who are wild and they will wander the land and the land will be a wilderness. That is a place as it were almost without water, which then begins to look a lot like the, you know, the earth itself uh, before God began to form it and to water the ground and to have a garden. And then he put man in the garden. So when you get judgment, you always get a reflection in the natural world. And that natural world, rather than being a fruitful place that's good for man, becomes an unfruitful place that is actually a sign of judgment upon man and his idolatry. Mm, yeah, a sign of judgment that we know from other parts of the book of Jeremiah, the people missed. He, he, he did these yeah. things, and they, they didn't get it. I mean, that's been a, a recurring <laughs> theme in several places. Yeah. Like, I, I withheld rain, but you, you, didn't, you didn't repent. So they, right. not only was it there for them, but they just totally missed it. Right, right. And I, I think some of that might seem naive, maybe, to the listener, but uh, the insight here is that if you actually believe that God is the creator, then you also will end up believing what the Bible says, which is that the creation depends upon him. So that when the creation fails in some way, things don't work the way they should. Uh, rain doesn't come when it should. Snow doesn't fall when it should. If it doesn't work, then you have a sign that something is broken here. And I think that the only reason that any of this seems far-fetched is because I'm not sure that we're as attuned as we should be to the connection that the Bible makes between our idolatry and the world's problems. I think we think maybe our sin is kind of just our personal problem, when in fact, because of our sin, you know, Paul can say that uh, the, the world is in bondage and it's waiting for the end day, the last day, uh, when it is no longer in bondage with us to sin and death, because with Adam, the whole creation went and fell. And so uh, the, the, the change in man that God wants to work in us, uh, the blessings he wants to give through Christ, those are the very things that will renovate the world itself. With our sin, yoked to our sin and our death, the world inevitably turns into a wilderness. Yeah, we're, we're waiting for that day for sure. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Jeremiah 8 and 9 with Dr. Adam Kuntz. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, May 28th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18 through 9, verse 16 with Dr. Adam Kuntz. He serves as assistant professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, prior to the break, we're looking at Jeremiah's lament, this, and which is mirrored in our Lord's own lament for his people, that he has to give this message. He continues, though, around verse 2, after he, he, you know, he talks about his, his head being waters, his eyes a fountain of tears. In verse 2, I think we see 
that his lament is not only for the fact that the destruction is coming, but also for the fact that his people have gotten them themselves into this in the first place. He starts talking about wanting to, <laughs> to get away from, from this people. So yep. and we've talked about it, the idolatry that's going on there. What, what else do we see in this text? What's going on in Jerusalem and Judah that's gotten them to this point? Yeah, uh, it's a whole complex of things that's going on. And just as Jeremiah's lament is, is mirrored in Jesus's lament over, over Jerusalem or Paul's lament over his people in Romans, uh, just so too, some of Jesus's uh, periodic uh, exasperation, let's say, with even the disciples, uh, how long must I bear with them? Uh, oh, oh, slow to believe, you know, foolish of heart and slow to believe. Um, Jeremiah, too, also grasps that though he loves his people and therefore laments over them, he also realizes that they have gotten themselves into this through their foolish idolatry. So what is going on is in itself, the, the, the manifestations of it are going to be complex, right? So it's not like Jeremiah has sort of like a, you know, an idolatry index similar to the Dow Jones industrial average, and it goes up or down. And, and that's how you know that they're good because the way that idolatry manifests is various right? So he wants to get away from them. He says they're all adulterers, right? But the issue there is that adultery, as we mentioned earlier with the daughter of Zion, is very often, especially in the Old Testament, a metaphor for idolatry. So he's not saying they all break the sixth commandment all the time. He's saying that they have fled away from their, from their bridegroom. The description, though, between, say, verses 3 and six has lots of everys or alls. Everyone does this. Everyone does that. And this is a way that scripture very often speaks. The Lord himself speaks this way, where uh, it's called hyperbole, where you kind of overshoot the mark in order to make your point, right? I mean, everybody sort of understands that. Uh, you never pick up your room. Well, you're not saying that your kid has literally never picked up anything in his room. You're, you're saying that as a general rule, his room is extremely messy. That's really what you're saying. And everyone gets that. And that's how Jeremiah is speaking, right? So, you know, saying that uh, they have bent their tongues like bows so that they can, you know, shoot arrows made out of lies or that they are being deceitful. They make themselves untrustworthy. You have all these different ways in which not only the relationship with God has broken down, that vertical relationship, that's broken through idolatry. But then because that vertical relationship is broken, the horizontal relationships with your fellow man are also broken. We talked a lot before the break about, you know, the, the problems that our sin brings to the world. But our sin also brings enormous problems and, and very familiar problems with each other. It, that really comes through for me, particularly in verse eight, I guess is where it really stood out, where the Lord says, with his mouth, with the neighbor's mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Remind, reminded of the language yeah. from earlier in Jeremiah that, you know, people are saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. These these false prophets right. are preaching peace when in fact there is no peace between God and man. And, and it really seems that here in Jeremiah 9, that has led to the fact that now there is no peace between 
the people. I mean, you you can't yeah. you can't trust anybody. There's no peace between right. God and man, and so there's no peace between me and you either. Right, and and the and the lack of peace is observable, and it, this is something to note. You know, is that the Bible attaches much more significance to what you can observe and, and what is going on and what you see people do than to the words they use. And Jeremiah is a really good study in that because he quotes the slogans of his opponents. Peace, peace, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So we know they have slogans, right? We would probably call them memes if they were visual and on the internet, but they have slogans. They have kind of things they say, standard rebuttals. And he says, look, you know, you don't need to listen to their slogans. You can see what people do to each other. So that's how you know what's going on. I mean, this is the principle Jesus lays down in the Sermon on the Mount in many and various ways. You know, by their fruits shall you know them. So if you can observe something, then you don't need to listen to their slogans because obviously they're not at peace because then their tongue wouldn't say one thing and their actions reveal a different thing. I mean, this this section as a whole really hits on the matter of truth or lie. I mean, that's the, yeah. it seems like, you know, you're talking about there, there are yeah. a variety of manifestations when it comes to idolatry. And and I think we've seen this previously in, in Jeremiah as well, that when, when people are teaching and believing lies about the Lord, then they're uh-huh. also going to be dealing in falsehood with each other. I mean, I, I guess, right. I mean, think how yep. Luther connects the two in the first petition, right, of the Lord's Prayer, that, you know, we, we want to we all we want to believe God's word truly and live according to it. That's how, how God's name is kept holy. But then the profaning of God's name, those two things go together. The the lies about right. God and then the not living according to that word. Right. Right. Yeah. The idea that you can separate them is is extremely unbiblical and it, it's also unproductive for oneself to think mostly about, okay, I, you know, I have the right formulations, I've, I've read the right books, you know, this sort of thing, because repentance is actually grounded in a certain capacity to observe, uh, especially in oneself, the manifestations of sin, right? It's actually, I mean, it's fairly easy to observe the neighbor's sin. That would be the that would be the speck you can see in the other guy's eye. Yeah. But the reason that your own log is difficult to see is because it comes much more naturally when you're sympathetic to somebody, especially and obviously yourself, to prioritize what is actually happening over the slogans or self-justifications that you, that you may have in this case. And so what Jeremiah is doing is he's always trying to call people's attention to look what people actually do. And what they're actually doing reveals a complete lack of honesty or, or, or peacefulness, a desire for peace, a capacity to make peace in human relationships uh, in these people. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and again, the, the connection to how that, that relates to their idolatry, you know, I think of the, and I don't know if we've talked about this one recently here on Sharper Iron, but how you, you know, you become what you worship. When you, mm-hmm. when you worship mm-hmm. idols, you start to behave like those idols. I mean, and so, you know, if an idol right. is a lie, you're, you're going to be living in lies yourself. And, and then too, I mean, right. I've, and I've been thinking about this actually, since we, we, we came out of first, second Peter and Jude before we started Jeremiah. And I've been thinking about this a mm-hmm. lot since we read particularly second Peter chapter two, 
where Peter's talking about the false teachers, and he, you know, he spends a lot of time talking about their lifestyle and not as much time talking about what the false teaching actually is. And it, made, it <laughs> well, it just got yeah. me to thinking, you know, yeah. how how we don't, I think in our day and age, maybe, or maybe this is just me, but I think, you know, we will look at lifestyle in the world around us. We'll see the various sins around us, but we don't always make the connection to false teaching. And I, I right. think, I think, Second, or I think Peter and I think Jeremiah too both would have us. When you see this out in the world, when you see, for example, with Jeremiah, this deception that's happening all the time, what you should be thinking is not just how do I fix the lies, but how do I, like, where? What's the idolatry that's happening? That's the root that both of them I think want to address. Right. 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 Yeah. And and it's it's not like doctrine is is you know nothing or something. But it is that doctrine always has a certain life attached to it. So if you worship Christ, then your life be- begins to be modeled after Christ. Not perfectly, of course, but it it does, right? That's why Paul wants people to imitate him, because he imitates Christ. Conversely, and very, very often in the prophets, if you worship a mute idol, you will become mute, if you worship an idol that has no real existence, you will also die. If you worship what is unable to care for or love your neighbor, uh, then you won't care for or love your neighbor either. So, uh, and, you know, converse to that, uh, the reason that Jesus makes the test of being his disciple, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another is because he is the one who lays down his life for his friends. So those who worship him and who follow him will do likewise because they worship him because of the doctrine they believe concerning him, their life will be a certain way. And what you see in Jeremiah is like we said, it's both incredibly sad, but it's also, this could have been, you know, you could have predicted this because you could say, okay, well you can go after the Baals, but you will become like them. And this means that you will not care, that you will deceive. You will become a deceiver when you have been deceived, right? Um, you will become a devil to people when you follow the devil. It's, it's pretty simple, um, but the manifestations of it are, you know, as various as the people uh, who are who are engaged in idolatry. Right. I mean, in, in looking here at the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 6, you know, both of them describe this proceeding from evil to evil or heaping oppression upon oppression, deceit upon deceit. This, you know, the, the sin just keeps building upon itself, the various manifestations. But both of them come back to the reason, declares the Lord, they do not know me. When, when you don't right. know the Lord— all you have is one sin after another, you know, a variety of ways, but that's all you have. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, Dr. Coons, as as the text continues, we get a an image that Jeremiah has used again uh, before. In verse 7, he taught the Lord says he's going to refine his people and test his people. What what is this this image of refining and testing in the scriptures? It's, a, it's an image drawn from anything that happens when you're done mining something and you want to know, okay, in this rock, how much gold do I actually have or how much silver do I actually have? And then it's going to be refined to get the dross. That's kind of everything besides the metal you're looking for, burned away, uh, flowing away so that you can keep what is pure, right? 
and it's an image that comes up throughout the scriptures. Um, it's in how firm a foundation, which is essentially just a quote, an extended quote from the prophets. And so it's, it's an image that in its way contains a certain amount of hopefulness. And <laughs> that hopefulness is that the Lord himself is the refiner. Um, it's an image, too, that Paul's going to pick up when he talks about the things that we've done in this life in first Corinthians three and talks about how they're going to be, you know, burned with fire and what is worthwhile will be saved because you can't actually, you know, burn up and thereby destroy gold as you would wood or straw and what is worthless like wood or straw will be burned away. Mm. So the idea here is that, and it's, it's just a little, let's say nugget of hope in this text because there's not much today. There's not much no. in, in what we're working with today. But it is, it is something, because it means that if the Lord is still dealing with them, even in his discipline, even in his testing, they are still his. If there were nothing there, then he would not refine. You would just, if you said, this is just rock, there's no gold in here, you'd just throw that out. You wouldn't bother refining. So the promise that he's going to refine them and try them is a promise that they are still his people. That refining and trying will be very severe, but they are still his. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen that elsewhere in Jeremiah, that, that the Lord does continue to name his people, my people, or you know, right. my heritage. There's, there's a variety of terms, but they are that pronoun is important. My people, you know, right. the, the daughter of my people that we've been talking about earlier. And yet the refining is is coming, and it's, you know, the Paul the Pauline language about you know whatever passes through the fire that just doesn't sound terribly pleasant, and yeah. <laughs> I mean it's it's necessary, but but not pleasant at the time for sure. And it, I mean the same thing I think is true for for Jeremiah. I mean verse nine, shall I not punish them? Shall I not avenge myself? And and that is what the Lord's going to do to His people. That's where where He He continues, particularly in the verses. 10 and 11, you get a description. We, we talked a little bit about this some when we were talking about the, the way that nature, you know, proclaims these things, and we see the, the calamity in nature. What, what is the punishment, the, the vengeance that is coming as Jeremiah is preaching here? Yeah, uh, it's important to say first that it is, it's depressing, but it's not actually as distressing as the punishment of the leaders of the people that happens at the beginning of chapter eight, where their bones are spread out before the sun. So the severity of the punishment of the leaders is always greater than the severity of the punishment upon the nation that followed their lead. The punishment of the nation is first of all, the destruction and desolation of their city. And the way that this happens is it's going to happen. It's not the agency here is not named. He doesn't say, going to be the Babylonians or it's going to be, you know, anything like this. Um, but it's a description of the scene and it's a scene of desolation and wilderness replacing what was once populous and uh, pleasant. So you get this idea that what's going to happen to the land that was supposed to be fruitful, flowing with milk and honey, given as a gift, right? The tribes there given into their hand will instead be populated by wild animals because the two and the two sort of major of the four major groups of sort of 
living beings in the Old Testament, the two groups that indicate something that is like that is suitable for human habitation, which would be birds and beasts of the field, they will be gone. So you won't hear them anymore. And it, you, what you would have to imagine is a place so dead that there is no there is no bird song, right? And that is in its way very profound and you can also sort of easily imagine what that's like and it indicates this intense desolation you won't hear of anything that lives with or near human beings so life just won't be there and nobody will even want to take a trip through right no one will even pass through the area because it will be too desolate too threatening too wild Images like this really put the, the, it's kind of the flip side of the picture of some of those more comforting passages from, say, the prophet Isaiah. I mean, I, how often does Isaiah, you know, picture that, that this wilderness, that's what Jeremiah is describing, will become a right. lush place? As you said, you know, Jeremiah's just right. not given us that comfort, but it is there in the scriptures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And, uh, the the other the other image that uh, is kind of important. I've talked a lot about the natural stuff. Is also the idea that Jerusalem moves from being a place that is built and constructed to being one where the stones are sort of heaped haphazardly. Mm-hmm. And that is the sadness of say you know the house you grew up in, uh, and you go back to it, and no one particularly owns it, no one's taking care of it things are falling down. It's sort of gradually rotting into the ground. That idea is an idea of complete desolation. So if this is where the daughter of Zion was supposed to be, she doesn't even have a house to live in anymore. So what, what happens here, I think too, really important to understand is that the effects of idolatry are wildly unpredictable. If you think about, say, the motivation of the person who says one thing to a person, but then stabs him in the back, the goal of that person is, is, is probably something pretty small, you know, sheer financial gain at work by getting a promotion that this other person won't get, or, or whatever the reason might be for the deceit, right? The problem is that sin has effects completely unforeseen by the sinner. And when those things are compounded by a nation following after it, its hankerings and its idolatries instead of following the Lord, then what you get is a kind of destruction that surely nobody envisions, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the sort of, that's the poignancy of the sadness of the daughter of Zion. She, you, she both is experiencing the loss of everything good and everything familiar, and at the same time is to blame for it. And that's the way it is with sinners. That's, I mean, that's just how we are, right? Simultaneously, I mean, you have compassion on a sinner if you have a heart at all, but you also say, I, it's, it's not like we didn't see some of this coming, right? But in fact, the sinner did not see it coming. The guy who was stabbing his neighbor in the back didn't think, yes, I want my home and the palace of the king and the temple to be completely overturned. That's why I'm lying to this guy today. You know, nobody, nobody foresaw that. Hmm. So I think that there's also part of the function of the prophet telling you beforehand that these things are going to happen and why 
that that is part of the Lord's refining, because if the Lord truly hated Jerusalem and Judah, he would not send Jeremiah. Jeremiah is trying to give people a sense of divine punishment before it comes so that if by any means possible, the nation could repent in the same way that the Ninevites did when Jonah said, you know, 40 days and Nineveh's done, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> not one stone will be left upon another. And the Ninevites see that vision of not one stone left upon another. And they say, oh, that's awful. Let's repent. You know, Jerusalem hears the same message and yet does not repent. I mean, I think that really provides a nice bridge to this last section where where you start getting, you know, who is the man so wise that can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Well, I mean, at least for that second question, the answer to that is with Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the (laughs) one that the Lord has spoken to so that he can declare it. And then he, you know, why is the land ruined? Well, Jeremiah then answers that by telling you. I mean, and that's that's precisely, you know, where where is this wisdom? Like, oh, I, I can't believe this has happened. I didn't see it coming. Like you said, yeah. that's where that's where the Lord in his mercy sends Jeremiah to tell you this is why it happened. You you should have known it ahead of time. You didn't. You you just followed after your sin like a wild animal. But but right. here's the prophet now to tell you so that you can repent and so that the Lord would show his, you know, so that the Lord then would turn and show you his mercy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because the question about wisdom is always a question, first of all, about the fear of God. And the lack of the fear of God leads into all manner of foolishness. But the fear of God leads in a very blessed way into all manner of godliness and and worthwhile things and righteousness in the way that, you know, the, the absolute essential here is that the godly man doesn't know everything or know exactly what to do in every situation but he fears God and seeks his will and his word. And what's happening there is not that, you know, Jeremiah is portrayed as a kind of Superman, but that Jeremiah, unlike the vast majority of his nation, actually listens to the Lord's word. And the difference that makes is that it makes him wise. So that not only does the Lord reveal to him what will happen if they continue in their idolatry, the Lord also reveals to him, uh, something he can preach to his people. And for me, this is, I think a very, this is in in its own way, extremely hopeful. And I, maybe, you know, you can say if I'm, if I'm grasping at straws here, but when I think about it this way, you know, I hear people talk about, oh, you know, more people used to come to the church or more people used to go to any church anywhere. That's all true. And, and it's sad, you know, the way our nation is at this point, but I'm not hopeless because I think if we have the Lord's word, we have hope. If we know the Lord's judgments and also his mercies, we have hope. If we just didn't have his word, if we were without him in this world, strangers to the covenants of promise, yeah, then we could right, rightfully be hopeless. If you have his word, it may be a difficult road to hoe. You know, you, you might have to be Jeremiah, right, in your family or something or in your town, but you have the Lord's word and your preaching will result in something, right? Because Jeremiah has the peculiar misfortune of living in the last days of his nation's glory. Yet his preaching is not only preserved, but it also preserves. There is, in fact, a remnant whom the Lord saves. They are refined as by fire. 
And so there is something that comes out of all this, even if Jeremiah himself doesn't get to personally see it. No, I don't think that's grasping at all. I mean, I think that that fits perfectly with with everything else that we see from the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, and even in this text, how he you know, he starts with these these questions and the the grief. What is it that sustains him through it? And those faithful Israelites with him, it is this word of the Lord. That's what sees. I mean, not to. I don't want to sound cliche, but that's what sees Jeremiah through all of this this trouble and persecution and the refiner's fire. It is the word of the Lord that he is given to preach so that, again, so to sustain him and to sustain all those who, who believe. Dr. Coons, with just about a minute left, help us to wrap things up in a difficult text. Help us to see Christ. Yeah, I mean, Christ not only laments, um, but Christ is also himself the Savior of his people. And so when you think about belonging to his people, you have to understand that there can be hard times, there can be discipline. There can be great hardship, there can be stubbornness, and there can be a lot of which you personally or your church need to repent, okay? That's all on the table for God's people, but he calls you his people, he's made you his people through baptism, and so he will see you through this. This is the great comfort of election, that you are called by him, and your salvation even after the harvest is gathered and the summer is past, your salvation will be entirely from him and of him and through him. So that comfort stands and his promises stand even when it appears that Jerusalem is in ruin. Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz is assistant professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18 through 9, verse 16. Dr. Kuntz, thanks for being our guest today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. If you have any questions about Jeremiah, any comments on this series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or download the new KFUO app. Use the open mic feature there to send up to a 60-second message. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>